Yeah, it's a long story, really, with a background in physics um, and, uh, and then a few years teaching physics and maths. Um, so looking at the interaction between, between media and, and uh, Christian faith is, is not the most obvious direction to, to go. When I was a UCCF staff worker based down in, down in Southampton um, in England, um, doing a lot of worldview training and evangelism training, I was using a lot of um, film and, and other media as, as just kind of source material to, to look at, really, and realized that uh, the, the kind of things that this was opening up were, it was rich territory to explore further. Um, and then when I came to the end of my time on UCCF staff, uh, a new organization was being set up called Demaris Trust, and I was asked to, uh, to help get that going right at the very beginning and was involved in that for 18 years. Uh, so writing primarily about, uh, about literature and film, but a lot of television and uh, some music along the way as well. I, I, didn't do, I did as little music as possible, to be honest, because my musical tastes mostly stopped with the death of Schubert in 1828 uh, and pick up a little bit with the, uh, the, the arrival of jazz. But I did do some music, um, but, uh, but film and literature were my, my big things. And um, so left that uh, two years ago, and uh, now I'm doing a lot of work with the Lausanne movement. The Lausanne, I'm the network coordinator for the uh, Media Engagement Network. And a couple of my colleagues are in Jakarta at the moment for the Lausanne Younger Leaders Gathering. So they've got a 1,000 people from 160 countries, young, young leaders. Um, and uh, I, I do some teaching in Norway and uh, various other places. And, uh, but I'm about to start a, a new project focusing down a little more because my, my big passion um, as, as well as media is the Old Testament prophets. So I'm just, just embarking on a a big project of uh, really what do the prophets say into in, uh, about contemporary culture obviously nothing very directly but there's a there are lots of very interesting uh, common themes which which go between the two fascinating listening to scott this morning talking about the, the extent of, of redemption and, and, and what liberation really means because those are the kinds of themes that the prophets are addressing and those are the kinds of themes that get addressed in the media again and again. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm just, just getting going on. Oh, man, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Nice, nice of you to be here. Um, so we're looking at the, uh, the stories we tell. Huge apologies that there is, is no handout. Um, somehow an, an email from the uh, New Horizon office completely failed to uh, to register in my mind i discovered it on the plane yesterday uh saying please send us a handout so uh, i'm so sorry um if you i'll put my website address up at the end it's very straightforward tonywatkins.uk and uh, there's um there's an article on there about this so that will have to substitute for uh, for a handout i'm afraid so looking at the stories we tell how uh, the 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 kind of themes that we keep recirculating in uh, in literature and film and and other narratives, how those um, echo aspects of the uh, the Bible storyline. I want to focus particularly on film, um, but uh, what we're saying has applicability. Why uh, you know a long way beyond that applies to to any narrative but we will keep our focus on film what i'd like you to do first is to just chat to a couple of people near you and talk about what your earliest memories of being in the cinema are what your or your first film memories not necessarily being in the cinema what what was the first film that really made an impact on you and why give you a few minutes just to chat about that okay i think that's probably uh, long enough Though I'm sure you, listening to the conversa- buzz of conversation, I think you could probably keep on talking for quite some time. Anybody want to share their earliest film memories? I'll tr- try and summarise it for the recording. But... Disney's Tarzan. Okay. How old were you then? Seven or eight. What, and what was it about, about that that impacted you? You wanted to, be. yep. That, that, that sense of wanting to identify or, or identifying wanting to be that figure is so powerful. I don't know whether that's more true for for boys than it is for girls, but, uh, but yeah, I think I think many of us have had that kind of sense of yeah, I want to I want to be that. Yeah, anybody else? 
Wizard of Oz. Uh huh. And um, it was at a cinema or, or home or Elston Museum. Right. Right. And what was it about the Wizard of Oz that impacted you? Uh huh. Right. Yeah. It's the first experience watching watching color. Uh, that's and the big screen, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a big impact on on you, especially if you're growing up with with black and white television to see a big color screen. Amazing. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. The Usual Suspects. As a first film memory? No, no. Oh, see, yeah, good. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. And why did it impact you? Ah, uh-huh, right. Yeah, extraordinarily detailed, uh, complex uh, plot line. So that was the first film that had an impact on you. Um, it, the uh, first film that I really remember having an impact on me was uh, was Bambi. Uh, I was um, I was completely traumatized by this. I don't know how old I was, um, four or five, something like that. I think this was probably my first cinema experience. I, I, I'm not aware of an earlier one. Completely traumatized. My family will say. That shaped my life. That this Bambi is why I have this strong pull towards uh, deeply distressing films. The more upsetting a film is, the more emotionally wrung out I am at the end of it, the happier I am. Um, and, and my wife will say that's also why I like the Old Testament prophets because they're miserable. Um, and uh, so they, they blame they blame everything about me on Bambi. Um, my other earliest uh, film memory is also a little traumatic for other reasons. Watching the Aristocats, I had a hot dog squeezed a bit too hard. The sausage flew over my shoulder and, and disappeared, never to be seen again. There's, there's probably somebody somewhere in the country at this very moment saying, when, I remember going to the cinema 50 years ago and, or 45 years ago and some kid squirted his sausage at me. I was, ruined the film. Anyway. The first films we see do have a big impact on us. And interesting what, what's come out of a couple of those, um, wanting to, to be Tarzan, the impact of the story, um, uh, less so the impact of, of colour, but, but the narratives grab us, don't they? And that certainly was, was what it was with, with Bambi and me. These, um, these stories are so compelling. And um, we want to be part of the story. Uh, or we want to we want to get into the story in some way or other. And stories do have this enormous power over us. And film fundamentally is about storytelling more than anything else. It is a very collaborative medium. Of course, it it involves uh, you know a big special effects film could involve a thousand uh, different people plus extras. So a huge undertaking. Even a small independent film will have. Uh, will have quite a number of people involved in all sorts of different ways. Uh, but right at the very heart of, of virtually all filmmaking is storytelling. Ingmar Bergman, the great Swedish film director, says, Film as dream, film as music. No art passes our conscience in the way film does and goes directly to our feelings deep down into the dark rooms of our souls. It has this ability to get under our, our radar and to connect with us in some profound ways. And because film is, is, is multimedia, because it's, especially in cinema, we're seeing it on a big screen with a, a large, uh, powerful uh, surround sound system, stench of popcorn in our nostrils, it becomes a, a, an all-immersing kind of experience that has a particular power over us. So films make us laugh and cry. They thrill us and they scare us. They transport us to faraway places and they bring to life things that we could only uh, dream of. And we love all of it. We love film as, as a culture. And um, although uh, the, uh, the death of cinema has been predicted several times since the 1940s, uh, cinema refuses to die. We keep on making films. But we, now we consume films in many different ways. Now we watch films on our mobile devices as well as on our televisions at home. Uh, we'll stream stuff as well as buy DVDs. We'll, we, we, we consume films in all kinds of ways. We love film uh, and we engage with film in, a, in, um, in new ways, I think, than we did uh, even 10, 15 years ago because of the impact of films like The Usual Suspects and, and the complexity of the storylines and the impact of long-form television drama, the, the complexities of, 
long series like um, uh, The Wire or The West Wing, where you've got many interweaving storylines that go not just episode after episode, but, but through multiple series, as well as the individual narratives of each episode. So all of that and the being able to watch things on, on DVD with uh, director's commentaries and so on means that we, we watch film with a level of detail and with a, uh, a level of enthusiasm that perhaps wasn't always there for, for most of us. Films enable us to see the world through different eyes as well. Um, think of a film like The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, uh, where this little six-year-old boy um, uh, whose father is a, a Nazi officer in the Second World War he becomes the commandant of a concentration camp. And through the fence of this camp, he, this uh, little German boy meets a Jewish boy, Shmuel. And they begin talking. And, the, and this German boy doesn't understand what's going on inside inside the camp and uh, John Boyne who wrote the story said um, he couldn't presume to, to, to understand what it was like to be in that kind of situation but he could put himself into the mind of an innocent little boy and ask questions what was going on here um, C.S. Lewis famously said in his experiment on criticism that um, great literature enables you to become a thousand different people and, then, and yet still remain yourself um, what is it about um, stories, narratives that um, that makes it possible for us to see the world through different eyes? Why is that a good thing? Why is it good for us to look at the world through different eyes? Why don't you chat to each other again for a couple of minutes about that? Okay, I think I'll stop you there. Um, take a couple of uh, brief responses to that. Why is it good for us to see the world through different eyes? Another perspective. You, yeah, so it, so, it, so it opens our eyes to different perspectives. It helps us to understand different situations. Yep, have I, have I got what you're saying properly? Is, is that good enough? Okay, anyone else? Yeah, empathy, I think, is, is, is very key. It helps you to empathize with people that you, in a way that you couldn't before. If you, if you have new perspectives on a new situation, people facing different circumstances to yours, they might not be, be real, well, of course, you know, most stories are not real people. It might not even be a realistic situation. It might be a fantasy world or a science fiction context. But nevertheless, um, all films are fundamentally about people, even if they appear to be about toys or cars uh, they're or fish. They're, they're still about people. They're still characters that we, we identify with. And, and it, helping us to, to empathize with these characters experiencing different things in different kind of situations uh, can be extraordinarily helpful to us. Uh, anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, great. So you go on an emotional journey. It helps you to, to, to process different kinds of emotions um, and, and to be able to reflect on all of that uh, and then actually still to be able to walk away from it without experiencing the, the, uh, the particular vulnerability or uh, danger or whatever that, that uh, is, is at the heart of the story. Uh, which is, of course, why we've always told fairy stories to kids. Fairy tales are... Very dark stories, many of them, and um, even the the sanitised versions that we tell are still often quite very dark stories. Um, and uh, fairy stories make little kids scared, and and that's good because it helps them to uh, to to face their fear and deal with those kinds of of, of emotions in a in a safe context. So it helps us to to learn and develop. But as adults, we need to do the same kind of thing. There's all sorts of uh, good reasons why, but those are a couple of very good ones. So stories matter to us, and um, stories matter um, possibly more than we realise. Philip Pullman, who is a brilliant writer, very strong atheist, of course, but a fabulous uh, writer, I think, um, he says, often nourishment, shelter and companionship, stories are the thing we need most in the world. Don't know whether I go quite that far, but certainly he's right to say that stories are are so kind of central to to our our being that we we need stories, and of course we understand our life through a process of telling stories about ourselves and what we're experiencing, what's happened to us, what what is going to happen to us, and so on. Here's Jan Martel who wrote Life of Pi. Um, he says stories, individual stories, family stories, national stories are what stitch together the disparate elements of human existence into a coherent whole. We are story animals. Salman Rushdie's um, 
Salman Rushdie talks in um, uh, his memoirs, I guess, kind of, uh, talks about his, his father teaching him that uh, human beings, man is a, is a storytelling animal, the only creature on earth that tells stories to understand what kind of creature it is. Here's Ben Okri, uh, Anglo-Nigerian writer. Uh, people are as healthy and confident as the stories they tell themselves. Sick storytellers can make nations sick. Without stories, we would go mad. Life would lose its moorings or orientation. Stories can conquer fear, you know. They can make the hearts larger. Very interesting that, that nations are as, as healthy or as sick as the, the stories that they tell. Um, we need to make sure we've got time to um, deal with the, the the meat of what we want to talk about today. So um, I don't know whether to get you discussing this or not, because I think this could take a little while. A um, couple of questions about uh, what, are, what are the stories that we're telling in UK society? Sorry, it says British society there. I don't know whether that quite works, because you're, you're the United Kingdom, but you're not, it's not Great Britain here, is it? Um, Many apologies. Uh, what, are, what are some of the stories that we're telling in our society at, at the moment, and what impact are they having on the health? Um, that's a, those are big questions, aren't they? I think we'll just, if, if you don't mind, I think we'll just park those in your head for you to come back to and talk over lunch, uh, but we won't take time to talk over now. I'll give you this quote from Stephen Lawhead instead. Perhaps it is how we are made. Perhaps words of truth reach us best through the heart. And stories and songs are the language of the heart. If that is true, that stories and uh, songs are the language of the heart, if, if, if we are storytelling animals, if we've been created by a God who reveals himself through narrative, in, in real historical space-time history, God has revealed himself through the story of, of his interactions with human beings, not through abstract philosophical uh, statements that are divorced from history. God reveals himself in history. So story is somehow uh, deep in the heart of God. And, and now it's deep in our heart because we're made in the image of God. And we need to take that uh, quite seriously, I think. And so the way that we engage with stories is crucial. Madeleine Lengel, uh, Christian writer, though I would take issue with some of her theology uh, says stories make us more alive more human more courageous more loving why does anybody tell a story it does ha indeed have something to do with faith faith that the universe has meaning that our little human lives are not irrelevant that what we choose or say or do matters matters cosmically and so it's no surprise given those kinds of things that the stories that we tell if storytelling is kind of deeply ingrained is inherent in human nature because we're made in the image of a storytelling god it's no surprise that the stories that we do tell in our culture keep echoing god's great story and i think that happens in a number of interesting different ways um i want to talk about seven key themes that uh, i think we keep exploring in stories that find their echoes uh, or, or or echo the story that we find in the bible um, I, I was kind of tinkering around the edges of this, feeling that there's, there's beginning to develop some ideas, feeling that there's some mileage in developing some of these ideas. Partly inspired by a book that was written back in the 90s, I think, by Christopher Booker called um, Seven Basic Plots, in which he argues that there are seven basic stories that we keep telling. Um, uh, but I, I'm not convinced about, about the seven basic plots that he comes up with. Um, and then as I was beginning to, to experiment a little bit with these ideas, I came across um, a book that had just been published by a guy called Mike Cosper, an American, called The Stories We Tell, whose um, excellent title for his book I've shamelessly pinched for my seminar, um, and who was looking at the same question. Now, I, it's great. I highly recommend it. I haven't checked the bookstall to see if it's there, but I'm hoping there might be some copies there. Um, so some of what I say will overlap with what he says in his book, but some of the things I say will be different because I'm bringing some of his thinking and some of my thinking together um, into, into this. Um, ultimately, I think we tell stories to each other partly because we are aware of the brokenness of the world and brokenness of our own lives and, and of our need for some kind of redemption, not necessarily thinking 
about redemption in a in a narrowly theological sense, but in redemption in its broadest terms, having our lives put right, having society and the world put right, we long for wholeness because that's um, that's the ultimate end for which God has created us. Um, so telling stories creates something of a little spark of hope in our lives. So what are the seven basic themes? We start off at the very beginning with a paradise lost story. Genesis, of course, opens with the story of human beings made in the image of God, like him in, in some profound ways, living in um, uh, intimate relationship with God and with each other. The nakedness of human beings at the beginning is not simply a comment on their state of dress, but on the, on the level of intimacy of their relationship. And, um, and then human beings threw all that apart, threw all that away as, uh, as Adam and Eve rebelled against God and lost the paradise for which they were created. And that idea of things have been good and then somebody messes things up, something happens to, to, to lose the paradise, comes up again and again and again. Um, the paradise that's, that's expressed at the beginning of the story is not necessarily a perfect paradise. It's just the world was good. There was something nice and now it's gone. Something good, and now it's broken. And the story centers around the fact that something that was good is now lost, um, often but not always through, through the actions of an individual. Let me show you a little bit from the very beginning of uh, Ben Zeitlin's film, Beasts of the Southern Wild, because um, uh, I think this is a, a very interesting paradise lost story. The paradise that we see is not obviously a paradise. We would look at it and say huge poverty and so on. But just look at the kind of uh, uh, zest for life and enjoyment and, and simplicity, simplicity of, 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 uh, of engaging with the world that there is here. Uh, uh, and then I'll just say a little bit about what happens in the film, but I don't want to spoil it too much. Might have to just adjust the sound levels as well. Ain't that good. ugly over there? We got the prettiest place on earth. Daddy says, up above the levee, on the dry side, they're afraid of the water like a bunch of babies. They built the wall that cuts us off. They think we all gonna drown down here. a whole bunch of water.
right here. Please who the earth is for. In many ways, it looks like a grim world, doesn't it, of, of um, loss of alcohol and, and poverty. But for this little girl, this is just, this is paradise. She has freedom. They don't have chicken on sticks. They don't have fish stuck in plastic wrappers. She gets to eat the fish straight from the, from the sea. And um, it, it, she lives this idyllic life she feels and then she does something and it all goes terribly wrong and there's an environmental crisis uh looming and she feels that she's responsible for the breaking of the whole world um it's quite fascinating uh, but again many 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 stories explore uh something that here's a good situation and somebody does something and wrecks it and the paradise has been lost theme number two is uh, the theme of breaking free because the what loses the paradise for human beings right at the very beginning is that act of independence, of breaking free from God's authority and saying, we do not need God to tell us um, what to do and what not to do. We can make the rules for ourselves. And um, so that urge for freedom is, uh, is so instinctive to us. We, some of us more than others, um, but... Um, I guess there are some people who, who instinctively like living by the rules and I'm possibly not one of them. Um, but, um, but, 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 you know, I don't know whether you've ever heard the story of a bishop on the train who uh, there was a sign saying, do not spit. And he, uh, this is a long time ago. And he said he never, ever felt an urge to spit like he did when he was in a railway carriage seeing that sign. He never wanted to spit at any other time. Um, do not walk on the grass. You think, oh, I want to walk on the grass. Um, so there is that kind of urge within us because we're sinful human beings. Um, but the urge to f for freedom isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it can be a, a negative thing. Sometimes it can be a positive thing because we're created for freedom. Adam and Eve were given freedom. They had immense freedom, all the freedom they needed. There was only one restriction on them. Only one thing they were not to do, and that was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that was the freedom they wanted. They wanted to go further. And so the act of breaking free is uh, recapitulated through human history again and again. And it comes up again in many of the stories. Countless examples I could give you. Let me give you one of the most famous from recent years from Frozen. Snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to receive. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. Don't let them don't let them see Be the good girl you always have to be Conceal, don't feel Don't let them know Well, now they know Let it go, let it go Can't hold it back anymore Let it go, let it go
you may have noticed it became quite a popular song uh, after the film came out um, and beca- because of, of that deep expression of, of freedom. Um, and I think many people fail to realise just that the film doesn't necessarily see that as a positive thing. Um, yes, yeah, she is ex- ex- expressing her freedom and independence. She's going away, but she's making herself... Uh, a king, putting herself in a kingdom of isolation, and and it looks like I'm the queen. Um, she's separated from everybody. She's she's just running away. Um, I don't care what they're going to say. It's time to see what I can do and test the limits. There's no right or wrong for me. She wants an absolute kind of freedom, and it has has an impact on on other people, of course. But film after film, there are people who who are trying to, to push the boundaries, find freedom. Sometimes in positive ways, as I say, uh, there, there are freedoms that we should be pursuing, but sometimes that's a, a very negative thing. Uh, theme number three is remaking the world. Once we have uh, uh, ex- exerted our, our independence, uh, broken free, lost our paradise, we have to reconstruct the world in our own image according to our own rules, because no longer are we living within the world that God wanted us to live in. So uh, to Elsa, having run away from um, Arundel, um, exerting her independence in that way, she, she has to remake the world. She makes her own ice palace. That's where she's going to live on her own in splendid isolation. Uh, and so she is uh, having to remake the world. Lots of science fiction films explore remaking the world. Uh, Interstellar, for instance, recently. I won't take time to show you a clip from Interstellar. Um, but just one of, of many examples where the Earth is facing some kind of crisis, an environmental crisis in this case, and uh, so Matthew McConaughey's character and the rest of the team, off they go to try and get through the wormhole to see if they can uh, establish life on, on other planets. Uh, that, that is the, the hope for mankind, is to be able to colonize somewhere else. Um, all sorts of different approaches to this. But it, it might not be on that grand scale of literally remaking the world. It might be somebody just having to remake their life. Think of the Robin Williams character in Mrs. Doubtfire, who uh, the, the marriage has fallen apart, he's out of the family home, and he has to remake his life. He's trying to find a new way of living that enables him to, uh, to see his children and so on and has to recreate, uh, well, to give himself a, a new character in order to make that possible. Theme number four is a very familiar theme from uh, fairy tales and fantasy and all sorts of, of other things, defeating monsters. I don't necessarily mean literal monsters, if it's a fairy tale, of course it probably is, but uh, but all kinds of uh, enemies and oppressors. Once uh, human beings had rebelled against God and and set about the process of of trying to remake the world, Cain builds his city. Um, communities are springing up all over the place. Um, history goes on. And uh, people are constantly trying to to settle and to become kingdoms and nations. Israel, of course, becomes a a nation and and enters the promised land. And it's it's a it's not what it should be, because they're fallen, broken people. God has has made them His special people. They have God's law. At their best times, they're trying to live by that law under God's rule. Um, but they they mess it up again and again. And because of their idolatry, God sends them oppressors, the Midianites and the Philistines and all sorts of other people through the book of Judges and on beyond then. Um, and they, they need a liberator. They need somebody to come and rescue them from their oppressors. Right the way through to the exile, and the Babylonians finally conquer the uh, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already been completely destroyed by Assyria in 722 BC. Uh, and then in 605, the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom, the last little rump state of the, uh, the once glorious kingdom of Israel, and uh, cart them off into exile. And it, and it looks like they're completely defeated. And, and the Babylonians have been God's servants in this, bringing punishment on God's people. But then God sends Cyrus, he sends the Medes and the Persians to, 
to punish the the Babylonians and to send God's people back home. And and even at the very point where it seems that all hope completely is lost for Israel, for Judah, um, God still steps in and uh, and rescues them from the oppressors and sends them back home. But of course, we look further on. We look further through scripture to the coming of the Lord Jesus who comes to defeat the ultimate monster, the ultimate oppressor, comes to defeat Satan himself through his death on the cross, comes to defeat death, our great enemy, comes to defeat our sin. All of the oppressors and monsters that uh, afflict our lives are ultimately defeated by the cross. It's a very powerful story. And every time you circle around this story in some way through literature and films, you're you're just stepping on the edge of that greatest story that has ever been told of God rescuing people from our enemies. Um, Let me show you a little bit from uh, the very end of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, of course, is the story of William Wilberforce fighting um, against uh, oppression within the UK of uh, the slave owners and the slave trade and the despicable things that were done to human beings through the slave trade. And then finally, finally, finally at the end of the film, after years and years of bringing his bill to Parliament again and again, and it just being knocked back again and again and again. I can't remember how many years... He brought the bill 17 times over 22 years, I think it was, something like that. The the figures might not be quite right. Incredible dedication, but eventually the slave trade uh, is abolished, and a few years later, slavery itself was abolished. And uh, this little bit I'll show you is um, uh, a speech of... um, a guy who, who at one point was uh, was his adversary in Parliament, um, Fox. Uh, and uh, this is what he, Fox has to say about Wilberforce. When people speak of great men, they think of men like Napoleon, men of violence. Rarely do they think of peaceful men. But contrast the reception they'll receive when they return home from their battles. Napoleon will arrive in pomp and in power, a man who's achieved the very summit of earthly ambition. And yet his dreams will be haunted by the oppressions of war. William Wilberforce, however, Return to his family, lay his head on his pillow. And remember, the slave trade is no more. let that scene run on i don't know how many times i've seen amazing grace uh, a dozen or more times um and still even when i'm just showing the clip i i feel the emotion um because it is so extraordinary he's finally finally won and when in a film or or any other narrative uh, the the protagonist wins a great victory over over an enemy over a over a monster an oppressor over some kind of evil there is such joy that wells up in our hearts, isn't there? If you read the Harry Potter series, that the moment at which finally Voldemort is defeated completely and, and utterly, and you know that a new world is, is coming for, for Harry Potter and his, and his friends. It's a fabulous moment. Brilliant writing from J.K. Rowling. Uh, drawing, of course, very heavily on, uh, on Christian ideas there as well. But these things resonate very strongly with us because we're aware of the impact that enemies have on our lives. Not necessarily physical enemies, but all of us are, are oppressed by, by something. All of us are aware of what a broken world it is and 
we're aware of what ISIS are doing and, and all sorts of other things going on. And we, we look at our world and we read the, read the news and we watch the news and we think, what, what hope is there? Can these, ever, these things ever be dealt with? Yes, they will. They will be defeated because the Lord Jesus won the ultimate victory on the cross. And so that, that deep emotional connection we feel with these kinds of things it, it has this strong echo of, of what God has already done in history. Then whether you've ever read um, Tolkien's essay on fairy tales, you'll have seen the quote if you've never read the essay, in, in which he talks about um, uh, the gospel is a, is a fairy story of a, of a bigger kind, a truer kind, because this is a fairy story that is true. Um, God broke into history, he calls it a eucatastrophe, a turning to the good. It's not a, a catastrophe where things turn to the bad and everything falls apart. This is a eucatastrophe where, where suddenly everything is put right. And there is nothing that excites us more than those kind of stories, it seems to me. Um, and for obvious reasons, because God has put eternity in the hearts of men. He's put something in us that instinctively resonates with that kind of story. How are we doing? Just about got time to get through the last three. Uh, number five is uh, overcoming brokenness. I think this is probably the most pervasive of all, the, all of the themes because brokenness is, is so integral to human existence, isn't it? You know, every day all of us are aware of our brokenness at some level or other, I think. Um, I, was, I really wanted to show you a, a bit from um, Wes Anderson's um, Moonrise Kingdom because that, that film is so powerfully about overcoming brokenness, it seems to me. But I, I just couldn't think of a, of, a, of a single clip to show you. I would need to show you half a dozen clips or even the whole film. Um, but um, I, was, I was very struck by how it deals with the, the themes of brokenness. And then came across a quote by Michael Chabon, which I should have put in here. It, it became the, the preface of, um, of a book about Wes Addison's work by Matt Solazites. Um, and uh, Michael Chabon talks about how um, uh, brokenness... I, mean, I don't know whether this guy is a Christian, but he talks about brokenness being... The, the kind of the common experience of humanity and that uh, the key thing that we learn through as we go into adolescence is that the world is a very broken place and we have to learn how to navigate that. Um, you'll find that on my website um, but if you uh, have never come across it, but it's uh, well worth finding that essay by or that introduction by Michael Chabon on uh, Wes Anderson's films. Anyway, Overcoming Brokenness. Let me show you a clip from... Um, Joel and Ethan Cohen's film, A Serious Man, about a guy, a Jewish guy in the 1960s, early 1960s uh, in Midwest America, whose life is going fine. It's a paradise lost story as well. Many of these overlap. Uh, everything's going fine for him. He's got a happy marriage. He's about to get tenure as a physics professor. And then suddenly everything goes wrong. It's a meditation on the book of Job in many ways. And... Um, his wife wants a divorce because she's having an affair. So he goes to see the rabbi um, because he wants, or his wife wants, a divorce, a get. And uh, the rabbi that he speaks to um, suggests a way that he might get a different perspective on this. See what you make of this. You just need to know as you go into this clip that when the rabbi talks about Hashem, that means the name. So he's talking about God because he's not going to... Uh, doesn't want to use God's name, so he'll, he, when you hear Hashem, he's talking about God. Hello, Larry. Good to see you. Oh, Rabbi Scott. So I thought I was going to see Rabbi Nachner. He was called away on Annette's Monim. Ruth Brin's mother is in the hospital, and she isn't doing well. Rabbi Nachner asked me to cover for him. Come on in. And she wants a get. A what? She wants oh, a... a get. Uh-huh. Sure. I feel like the carpet's been yanked out from under me. I don't know which end is up. I'm not even sure how to react. I'm too confused. What reasons did she give? For the rupture. 
She didn't give reasons, just that, oh, you know, things haven't been going well. And is that true? I guess. I don't know. She's usually right about these things. I was hoping that Rabbi Nachner could... That he would... He would, yes? Well, with the benefit of his life experience. No offense. No, of course not. I am the junior rabbi. And it's true. The point of view of somebody who's older and perhaps had similar problems might be more valid. And you should see the senior rabbi as well, by all means. Or even Marshak, if you can get in. He's quite busy, but maybe... Can I share something with you? Because I, too, have had the feeling of losing track of Hashem, which is the problem here. I, too, have forgotten how to see him in the world, and when that happens, you think, well, if I can't see him, he isn't there. He's gone. But that's not the case. You just need to remember how to see him. Am I right? I mean, the parking lot here. Not much to see, but if you imagine yourself a visitor, somebody who isn't familiar with these autos and such, somebody still with the capacity for wonder, someone with a fresh perspective. That's what it is, Larry, Um, because with the right perspective, you can see Hashem, you know, reaching into the world. He is in the world, not just in shul. It sounds to me like you're looking at the world, looking at your wife through tired eyes. It sounds like she's become a sort of thing, a problem, a thing. She is seeing Cy Abelman. Oh. They're planning. That's why they want the get. Oh, um, sorry. It was his idea. Well, they do need a get to remarry in the faith. But uh, this is life. You have to see these things as expressions of God's will. You don't have to like it, of course. Boss isn't always right, but he's always the boss. (laughs) That's right. Things aren't so bad. Look at the parking lot, Larry. Just look at that parking lot. That's not much of an an approach to overcoming brokenness. I mean, here is this guy that his life is falling apart. And the best advice is look at the parking lot. Get a fresh perspective on life. Yeah, okay. Um, But the the whole film is this guy struggling with with the brokenness of life and trying to find answers, trying to make sense. Eventually, he does get to see Rabbi Marshak. Well, he goes to try to see Rabbi Marshak, who is a, a, the old rabbi. And um, he can't get in because he's busy, sitting at his desk doing apparently nothing. Uh, but, um, uh, but Larry pleads with the receptionist or secretary. Um, I'm, a, I'm a serious man. I just, I just want to be able to make sense of all of this. And he can't. There's nothing, according to the Coen brothers, that makes sense of all of this. There is a a moment right at the very end of the film where I think they... I don't know what they're thinking. Um, uh, It's a a bar mitzvah ceremony uh, right at the end of the film, and there's an old... um, old man officiating at this this ceremony, and he lifts a a copy of the... uh, a scroll, a Torah scroll above his head, and it's so, he's a doddery old man, and, and it's so heavy that he, that he blasphemes and, and speaks the name of Christ. And I, I, don't know what, I, mean, I don't know what they're thinking, whether it's just for them, just words. But he's, they're, they're certainly saying more than they know at that point, because you're struggling under the weight of the law. Actually, Jesus Christ is the only one who can deal with this. Jesus is the only one who can make sense of this brokenness. Job only understood, well, Job never fully understood what was going on in his situation. He did need the new perspective of of God as a creator, God who is absolutely wise, who is in control. And and Job said, okay, I'll be quiet. I'll stop. I'll stop complaining. But he never really understood why he was suffering. But he maintained his confidence in God in the middle of his suffering. He said, I can deal with this brokenness because of God, because of who God is. 
with a New Testament perspective, we have a radically different approach to the brokenness of the world because we know it is ultimately going to be redeemed. It is ultimately going to be put right. But meanwhile, human beings try all sorts of things to deal with the brokenness, to heal the brokenness, to put right the wounds, to, to overcome the injustice, to take away the pain. And everything that is not centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, every approach that we try is flawed. So 99% of the films that I've ever seen have a fundamentally flawed approach to dealing with our brokenness at their heart. Number six, finding true love. A very familiar theme. Uh, Kristen Thompson, an American um, writer on film, did an analysis of 100 Hollywood films over 100 years, 10 films a decade. And uh, what were the, the main themes? She was analyzing in all sorts of ways. But when she looked at the main themes, she concluded that uh, romance was at least the primary subplot in 85% of these 100 Hollywood films. Um, so it was either the main theme or the primary subplot. Uh, so that's, that's a very familiar kind of theme, the, the Hollywood ending, people going off into the sunset. Life is, is, is now better because these people have found true love. But true love is, is bigger than that, isn't it? It's not just about romantic love. Plenty of examples of that in the, in the movies. Uh, but, but some of the best films for me are films where the true love is, is not necessarily romantic but is expressed in all kinds of other ways um, if you ever get the chance to see Lars and the Real Girl it's a beautiful film about love within a community it's also a film that will really shock you at one point because Lars is a, is a very dysfunctional guy uh, who can't make relationships with people and he develops a very unusual strategy and there's a moment I sometimes show it to groups and, and I at this particular moment, I watch their faces rather than the film because they suddenly realize what what this guy is doing and they think, oh, no, this is, this is not the film I thought it was going to be. It's okay. Just it, when you watch the film, just relax. It'll be okay. But it is, there is a, I just need to warn you there's a, that, that you're, you'll be kind of horrified. You think, oh, this, is, this should have a much higher rating. It, it's only a 12 film, and it's a lovely, touching film about the way that the uh, people in a community really love this broken guy and enable him to, uh, to become a, a, a more whole person as a result. Anyway, I'm not showing you a bit from that. Um, I'm not going to show you a clip at all, in fact, because it'll be picked up in our last clip. Uh, in a minute um, but but last and the real girl is not primarily about romantic love he finds love from the people around him and from his uh, brother and sister-in-law um, and um, there are lots of other examples but but true love genuine love is a beautiful thing and when we see we see people genuinely love each other putting themselves out for each other uh, giving themselves for each other then that that's wonderful Film number, theme number seven, to take us to the close. I need to stop for questions, actually. We got time to watch one more clip. Can we get away with that? Is, is coming home. Because, of course, scripture ultimately is, is the expression of God's love for, for people and wanting to bring them to our perfect home, the new creation. And um, when, when we get to that point, we discover what we've been wanting all of our lives. Because deep within the human heart is a longing for shalom, the biblical understanding of peace, which is it's not just a sensation of hostilities. It's not just quiet like peace is in my house my, where my three boys are not killing, them, killing each other. Peace, peace biblically is all-embracing well-being that begins with peace with God, makes possible peace with other people, peace with the environment and peace with ourselves, everything together, everything in harmony. We are at home. And so there was, those of us who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus, know that we have an eternal home. But deep in the human heart is that longing for home, the place of peace. Um, and uh, so many examples of this. Let me just show you. Let's go back to Frozen uh, as we close. Kristoff! Anna! Oh, no. 
I love you. An act of true love will thaw a frozen heart. Love will thaw. Love. Of course. Elsa. Love. Keep showing you that because we're out of time. Uh, but but Elsa, Elsa comes home. She finds, she discovers genuine love because her sister really loves her, sacrifices herself for her, and and is able to real to to deal with the, the 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 frozenness because of the love that she now finds in her heart. And so she comes back, and everything is okay. Everything she's found home again. Um, just a little tantalising glimpse of uh, of the hope that's ahead of us. Uh, I won't give you that quote from Frederick Wigner. I'll close with this quote from Tom Wright. Stories can change the world. These are powerful stories. And these stories that we keep telling have echoes of this great story of what God has done in history and what God is still continuing to do as we head towards the new creation because he's put eternity in the hearts of men. So as you look at stories, as you watch films, read books, just keep asking yourself, how does this, this story that I'm reading, how does this tie in with some of the big, big biblical themes? Um, I'm happy to take questions for a while, although we're out of time. Please, uh, uh, you're supposed to fill in a feedback sheet. Sorry, I'm not giving you any time to do that. Many apologies. Uh, and I said I put my website up for you, for those of you who want to read the article on this. That is here. Thank you very much for coming.